0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up on
1: today's episode, Bruce and I dive deep into Operation Varsity Blues and talk about David Beatty's lawsuit against Kansas and answer all of your email questions. That's next on The Audible. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. I have a question, Bruce. Did you get into Miami on your own merits, or did somebody pay a bribe?
2: Stu, I don't know anybody who can do that. This story I know we're going to talk about, which I'm referring to as now Aunt Becky Gate, because it involved Lori Lachlan. I think that the Lori Lachlan, Lachlan, Felicity Huffman angle of this got it, I think, a lot of attention, But when I first started looking at this, I'm like, you know, this is not this is not a surprise at all to me that something like this happens. Now, the layers of it are really kind of fascinating. But I think the aspect of rich people, I mean, we see this all a lot of times with famous politicians and big business people basically buying their kids way into educations and and degrees that they probably would never have been able to get. If it was based on their own academic merits
1: i think that this really touches on so many themes that are already uh you know there's already a lot of backlash in this country people who are going to be running for president are, are putting this central to their platform about inequality and privilege of the wealthy and this just really hits all it stinks of, that. of it yeah. yeah yeah so you said it didn't surprise it doesn't surprise me that you know wealthy people would be trying to game the system to get their kids into college what I think really because you know, you mentioned the 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 Hollywood part of it. If when this story broke pretty early on the West Coast, the and I I wish I could give credit, but I don't remember who the reporter was that did it first. But his first tweet was you know massive indictments coming today and Division One coaches are involved. So that's what got our attention. Like whoa, uh, and you're thinking that could be football coaches or basketball coaches. And then the next one was like and two of the people arrested or. Lori Lachlan and Felicity Hoffman, and you're going, how on earth could those be connected? Well, you know, I guess the thing I would not have guessed or or realized is that there would be this this pretty involved scheme in which, and these are in many cases very prominent head coaches of Olympic sport teams at at major universities. The water polo coach at USC uh, who got arrested and fired on Tuesday, 16 national championships. And And the idea that And by the way, this is probably just the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure they didn't catch everybody that's done this. That it was almost like a a side income for a lot of these coaches. Like, who, by the way, are not making Nick Saban money or even, you know, Mac football head coach money. You make a little extra money by uh, helping some Hollywood actor's daughter get into college. And really, just in the most corrupt way possible. I mean, it's not clear that this was the case in, in every situation. But certainly, in some, you know, they're basically allocating a scholarship from, you know, off of their own team's scholarship count to get some kid who doesn't even play the sport into college. So, uh, I think that's the part, at least in our world, that really that really sends shockwaves. Uh, there's a IMG Academy who sends tons of kids to college to play college football and basketball. Their own one of their own employees was taking taking tests for kids. It's uh, it, it, while there wasn't a lot of direct college football mentioned in there. It certainly reverberates uh, in our world.
2: How cynical, and then maybe I, I The answer to this, because I can feel it myself, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit when it comes to, quote, scandals, and you look and go, all right, well, because of the Jerry Sandusky stuff with Penn State, it has recalibrated how we think of things. You just kind of shrug your shoulders at some of this of, of kids getting extra benefits and extra meals or, or whatnot. When it comes to this, it is a bad look, and there's obviously, you know, millions of dollars we're talking about in bribe, but I think in knowing the landscape of how, our country works and that expression because this came up i've had conversations with people in the last day or so where it's like this is just another reminder it's not what you know it's who you know and i think you look at every aspect of our society not never mind hollywood and you look at just how our country works this is nothing surprising about that that's why i kind of always look and go you know what it's it, everywhere you over every rock we overturn there's crap to it.
1: I think it's an enormous scandal. It's, you know, as I wrote on Tuesday, you know, a lot of people have kind of rolled their eyes or been apathetic toward the uh, college basketball FBI scandal, uh, even though there have already been people who are sentenced to prison over it. Because at the end of the day, if you're somebody who thinks the NCAA rules are stupid and the players should be getting paid anyway, then it's hard to be outraged that that this is being classified as bribery. You know, the shoe executive or the runner that they're going to jail for put, giving an athlete's family money. I get that, but this is not specific to athletics, and this is, there's a difference, like for instance, people said, well, rich people have always been able to get
2: their kids into college right. by
1: donating a building. Okay, well that's legal. <laughs> this is not, this is that, just that's an a, outright that's fraud. Le-
2: that's legal, but it's, it still comes at the expense of other kids who are probably more deserving.
1: Yes, true. But, you know, I think that, in other words, there is some gray area in the basketball scandal if people want to say, well, I don't think what's going on here was actually, should be actually even be considered unethical. I would say the way I look at it is I don't think that, I don't, I don't fault the, the families who are getting money in that situation, but I do fault that. I mean, Will Wade is a multi-million dollar coach who knows better. You know, if he's caught cheating, whether you agree with the rules or not, he gets caught cheating, he should be held accountable. But there's no gray area in this. Everybody that was involved, the the senior associate AD at USC, who is literally creating fake profiles of athletes and then taking them into the to the athletics, uh, you know, admissions subcommittee and getting them enrolled. And then after they get and after they get accepted, oh, they came down with a mystery injury and they're not going to play anymore. Like that's fraud of the highest degree.
2: Well, let's talk. So let's talk about it first. It's, It's Donna Heinel, and she's really the highest level athletics person who is ensnared in this at this point and here's what her role is or was like pretty much all the transfers of recruits that usc is going to try to get in that she's the one who goes in front of the board and makes the case now what i think is interesting subplot to this maybe subplot is too too uh loaded a word but usc i think admit about 3,000 freshmen a year, obviously not just student athletes, that's everybody. And they, they get, I don't know, 50,000 students apply. From everything I've heard, it's like, in a lot of cases, it helps to know people there to get into that. But it's almost a lottery at that point, right? And so the level of influence and the bribes here, I mean, I think there's two layers to this. And one of the things I know you wrote about and a lot of people have written about, and quite honestly, it's something that we had Ryan Abraham uh, uscfootball.com on, on this podcast about a month ago. And, you know, I talked to somebody who knows how USC works and the word they described is it's basically a shit show. in, in the, le- the way that place now operates and has been operating for a while. And you certainly, you know, where is Lynn Swan and where is the accountability? So I think this there's so many layers to this. As I said before, the USC layer is certainly one that is going to be out front. And then there's the, the really the big picture of this scandal as it is, as much as it's athletics. But I feel like it's it's just another lesson into the it's not what you know, it's who you know. And unfortunately, this is fair or unfair. and It's certainly not fair. But this is a slice of how the country seems to work in a lot of cases.
1: So the guy who was the ringleader of the whole thing, um, who pleaded guilty on Tuesday, and I guess is trying to get a reduced sentence, he, he, you know, turned and started working for the prosecutors at some point, you know, described it very succinctly. He said, there's a front door, which is, you know, legitimate, apply to college and get accepted or not. And there's a back door, which is your family donates a lot of money and hopefully that wields influence. I created a side door, which it was so appealing because it was a guarantee. Like, there's not gonna be any question here. You're gonna, I know the, you know, I'm basically he, he knows what numbers it's gonna take, you know, SAT grade point wise to get past the admissions committee and we'll just make it happen. And then we'll fake a picture of your kid playing water polo or uh, what was the There's so many great nuggets in that and I haven't even really read the whole thing yet, but there's so many great nuggets that people have highlighted. Like the kid who, they took a picture of him supposedly playing water polo and he's like, nobody can get that high up in the air playing water polo. What are you doing? What's wrong with that picture? He's like, oh, well, he was standing in the pool. Just the, <laughs> the absurdity of all this. So you're right. It's in many ways a lottery at some of these upper level schools. I found it fascinating the amount of money involved in some. Like clearly they price the prices seem to vary based on the prestige level of the school. Like the the one who tried to get it the, got their kid into Yale. That was one point two million dollar bribe. And then some others. It was you know a hundred thousand or fifty thousand. I mentioned earlier the, the IMG Academy tie-in. Uh to me, this is pretty significant in the recruiting world. This guy, Mark Riddell, basically he his role at the at IMG was he was the person who was, you know, the, the basically like the guidance counselor for college admissions. So all of these recruits that would come through IMG and would apply to colleges, he's the one that facilitated that. Well, also he was going to Houston and taking tests. He's 36 years old. He's going to Houston, and taking tests for these clients that were of the parents who were um, paying the money. Uh, in some cases, he would change the answers afterward. He, they had a guy in Houston who was, you know, complicit in this. I got to think that raises some attention with compliance people, maybe with the NCAA clearinghouse that, well, if he was doing this for other kids, how do we know he wasn't doing this for IMG's own recruits?
2: No, I think these are, these are valid questions to ask. Would you feel a little differently about this? If let's say you have an, in the case of Lori Lachlan's husband is a famous designer. I don't know how much money he's worth, but he's worth a ton. Right. And thinking about this and you think about like, okay, people have generational wealth. A lot of these kids probably would never have to work real jobs as adults. Right. I mean, if you have, if you can, if some of their parents can afford to do some of this, if you'd say, okay, you know what USC, you know, we're just going to give you straight up, you know, $1.2 million. Our student, our, our child is going to go there, but we're not, it's not going to be at the cost of another student. Meaning if you're going to take uh, 3000 freshmen, you take 3050 and these other 50 students are going to be enrolled. It's not to say that they're going to take fake classes, but if they can, you know, this is they're going to pay for their admissions, but it's not coming at the enrollment cap of 50 other students who don't have that kind of influence or that kind of financial resources. Do you look at it differently?
1: No, it's a very tangible issue, right? You don't, you only have a certain number of classrooms and you only have a certain number of dorm rooms. And, you know, I know it's a little bit like, they handle it a little. They have to do it in some ways. They have to handle it a little bit like an airline. You know, like an airplane gets overbooked. They accept a certain number of kids, and then they're basically waiting to see what percentage of them accept. I, I have seen situations where I've, I've definitely read about situations over the years where school where more people accepted than they were expecting, and they didn't have enough dorm rooms. You know, so they tend to manage that pretty conservatively.
2: Yeah. Well, if you're yeah, but here's the thing though: if you're one of these students, you have this kind of money. You can afford to live wherever you want. Oh, you're I see. So you're
1: saying there. they should just go ahead and just be upfront about it and create like a parallel except a mission system? Let for, them go for rich, be, let them go, be,
2: um, <laughs> you know, like 18 year old Rodney Dangerfield in this school. Let them, you know, like, again, I'm, there's a, there's going to be a grown up who's going to sit right into our podcast and go, no, this is why it, you can't do that. I'm just saying, I, the dorm, the dorm reason, there's, if they have that kind of money, they don't need to live in a dorm. It, I, again, I feel like the part that bothered me about this this story is that it came at the expense of some other students who don't have those means. And let the don't don't have it come at the expense of those students because this went on. If the school wants that much money, let them negotiate that kind of deal and say, "All right, you're not going to be you're not part of this enrollment process, but you can still." be a quote-unquote student here. Now, are we going to give you free grades? I mean, you're already talking about a level that seems like it was a scam, so let's, I don't know, does that devalue the the education? I mean, it already seems like some of these students would devalue the education, whether they're on the up and up or not.
1: I don't know, and, and we haven't even touched the fact that, and I thought this was the part that would probably take off the most, but I'm not seeing that yet. Just, there was a reason they steered these kids to the athletics right it's just a it's a known fact that it's easier to get in if you're an athlete than if you're not um that these the schools lower their standards for athletes and like we've always known that it's not a secret um but this kind of a, i mean it's kind of a.
2: I think people are surprised that it's not scholarship athletes though
1: it's unclear if whether they are or not
2: right but i'm saying if you're using that so here's a uh, um a kind of a real time analogy so there was, a, I did that offensive line story for the athletic, I don't know, two months ago. And one of the players in there was initially committed to Yale and he ended up signing with Duke and a lot of big schools, big football schools got in on him late. He was a late bloomer. And I had reached out to somebody at USC and, and said, how did you guys kind of hear about this kid who's originally, who who's from Ohio and was told, well, once they saw he was committed to Yale, they look at Ivy league commits because they see them as potential walk-ons and and a lot of times I think they see walk-ons certainly will have, if they're Ivy league kids will have the academics to get in or at least close to get in, but also they would, in a lot of cases, probably be able to afford to come to USC as walk-ons, which it's a private school. And it's harder to get some of those kids than it is for a state school. So I think there's, there's some layers in there that, kind of explains some of that process. But I think the fact that, let's say you were a, a student and you were a decent student but not good enough to get into to USC, but do you preferential treatment because they because they view you as a recruitable athlete, even if you're not on scholarship? I think that's what changes that.
1: At the end of the day, I think the reason this this story touches such a nerve is that it affects so many people. Millions and millions of people in this country have gone through. I went through it. You know, anybody that's gone to college has gone through this. Very, you know, you're 17 years old and you feel like your whole future depends on getting into a certain college. And it's so you, you know, you take the SAT, you got to get a certain score. Uh, it's it's extremely stressful, and this confirms everybody's worst suspicion that basically the system is rigged. That no matter how great your essay is, no matter how many national honor society or how many volunteer work you've done, et cetera, et cetera, that you might still not get accepted, and some kid who whose parent bribed the, the rowing coach does. You know, whereas a scandal like the college basketball one, at the end of the day, it's a very, very small part of the population that's had a, you know, a son or daughter recruited to be a high-level athlete. But lots and lots of people have been gone through the college admissions process, and this just lays bare that it's extremely corrupt. And, I'm not, and I, like I said before, I don't think it's just the people that they caught. These are the people that happened to be on, you know, got caught on a, on a wiretap chances are this goes on a lot more places that it's kind of, it's probably other non-revenue coaches have done much of the same thing. So, uh, I assume there's going to be investigations, congressional investigations. Um, you know, I would think the NCAA is going to have to go back and start looking at, you know, amongst their current athletes, going to have to probably start going back and looking at, at, uh, test scores and, and, and applications from people who either play, you know, went through this I don't know, that they think might have a connection to it, especially the IMG part. So um, I don't think this story's going away anytime soon, though I do think maybe the Full House jokes will
2: pass. The you know, Aunt Becky jokes will pass at some point. All right. Well, I think we've talked about this plenty. <laughs> what else is on your mind this week? Well,
1: it was a very a other- newsy day. The day that this broke, there were like three or four other big stories in our world. David Beatty, uh, who Kansas fired in November of last season, is suing Kansas for $3 million which he says he is owed buyout money. Anytime a coach is fired for just not winning enough games, that's considered being fired without cause. And so whatever it says in the contract that you owe him, you owe him. But apparently they have not been paying him the $3 million. As these things often happen, the story comes out first from the plaintiff side and the law firm was sure to highlight a quote, and we're still not sure where it came from, that they were, quote, looking, to, you know, looking for skeletons in the closet. at least if he has a dead hooker in his closet, was the quote. So they can get out of paying it. They can fire him with cause. Then Kansas puts out their statement saying, "Well, actually, we found out during the course of exit interviews with his staff that there may have been some NCA violations, and we're investigating it. And as long as that's going on, you know, the money has been set aside in escrow. We're not paying it yet." Two sides to the story. Any early uh, hunch who you believe?
2: You know, I'm going to lean towards David Beatty on this one because they didn't fire him with cause initially they said something it came up it's like what becomes a fireable offense clearly there's a lot of money kansas is trying to save here and they're trying you know they're going to try to find a reason now after the fact but if they find a reason is it just is it just any violation that they would deem well oh, that's enough for us to get our three million dollars and not have to pay them. by the way keep in mind kansas is could be in a really precarious situation with the basketball scandal as that is playing out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's there's a lot of things going on here, but I don't know. I mean, there better be a significant violation, a major infraction, if Kansas is going to try to justify this after the fact. And also, I think the fact that they have put out that this investigation part of it, I mean, it makes it harder for David Beatty to get a uh, an assistant coach job someplace else if he's in limbo for this and also if there's the potential for some kind of violation that was so significant that that's why he was fired I don't know it's it's probably not the book for Jeff Long the KUAD right now
1: well unless like you said it turns out that there was some really legit violation under his watch that you know, if he hadn't been losing, they would have fired him for cause anyway. Uh, it really looks petty. And it's interesting the perception of Jeff Long, who, you know, was the original chairman of the selection, football selection committee, was held in very high esteem for that. Was Actually, before that, I think where he really got on the map nationally was when he fired Bobby Petrino because it was seen as, at Arkansas, it was seen as one of those moments where the guy, you know, he was winning a lot of games. He was bringing success to Arkansas that they hadn't seen in a long time. And there are many situations where the AD would have found a reason to keep him, even though it was a pretty egregious uh, ethical violation, basically, that he had. But Jeff Long fired him. I remember when Brett Bielema got hired, he he cited that press conference as, like, having watched that press conference. I had somebody I might want to work for. So it held in very high esteem. Then he gets fired from Arkansas. The boosters basically run him out. He resurfaces at Kansas. He hires Les Miles in a hire that obviously, I've been very down on, but I'm not alone. You know, I think a lot of people in the profession are like, what was he thinking? And and now this. It's not a good look.
2: No, we'll have to see. I mean, I don't want to jump the gun too far. We'll have to see what uh, what comes of it in this, uh, in this legal battle. It's usually one that nobody wins, though, because I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, you said we'll see how legitimate there is. To if there's a violation there, it wouldn't be surprising. It's the question of, How significant is the actual violation? There's plenty of secondary violations or what used to be known as secondary violations that go on. The question is: Would you would can you justify firing a head coach and not paying them for that? To me, that's something that's going to be interesting to see.
1: What else has caught your attention this week?
2: Well, Kyler Murray had his pro day as we're taping this uh, earlier this morning. As expected, he looked good because usually quarterbacks do look good in their pro day and what's what's scripted and everything like that. Again, I, I think, and you and I have talked about this before. I think Kyler Murray is going to be a big big storyline till then, but. At this point right now, I got to admit, it feels like the NFL has done a really good job with its free agency and certainly trades play into that being a constant storyline. And it feels like that, as much as anything else, has kind of lived on. One thing, before we get to the mailbag, one thing I do want to point out was I got an interesting series of texts this morning from a football coach I know who took issue with both of us. For our top twenty-five coaches list from last week, and I'm going to read you some of this stuff. And this person said, "I was yelling at both you and Stu in the in the car this morning as I listened to that. And you know what he was most irritated about?
1: Kirk Ferentz.
2: Kirk Ferentz, but especially Paul Crist. Was he was he irked about Kirk Ferentz? What's that? Was he really irked about Kirk Ferentz?" Yeah. Kirk Ferentz was the first one. And then Paul Chris, what else does he have to do to, for you guys? And so I said, well, who would you have taken off? And his answer was, I would knock out Dino Babers and Jeff Brom. I think you have to win consistently with the big boys. He also took real issue with you not having Jim Harbaugh anywhere on your list. He he goes. If I'm ranking him, he would have Jim Harbaugh in his top. Kind of
1: sounds like this is a Big Ten coach. Not gonna lie, every single coach he's upset about is in the Big Ten.
2: Uh, that is fair. This is a person who has spent time in in a, in a several places, but the Big Ten is one of them.
1: Well, I will say that our mailbag session this week is going to start with people who took issue with the list, and that's that's to be expected. You know, you rank 25 people; people have opinions. Some people are gonna. I can't imagine there's many people who read a column like that and go, yep, I agree with all 25. So, let's dig into the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Regular listener and reader Jerry Swider says, uh, guys, your discussion touched on several of the significant differences between your two rankings, but ignored Dan Mullen, who I have at 13 and you have at 24, uh, Mike Gundy, difference of 18 and 23, and Kyle Whittingham, difference of 23 23 and 17. Did you do any pre-podcast planning to decide which differences is discussion or did you just wing it when the microphones were turned on? Well, first of all, Jerry, you should know we're always just winging it when the microphones are <laughs> on. <laughs> you think we put any sort of planning into this thing? Come on.
2: I honestly didn't realize, I, I don't think the there's a huge gap between where you and I had Gundy and Whittingham, I didn't look at yours and go, because I, I I feel like you respect Kyle Whittingham quite a bit. I'm a little surprised that now seeing it at 23, I didn't really kind of you know notice it when you when I looked at your list. But I don't think that's a huge gap, nor do I, I don't think Mike Gundy is a huge gap. Dan Mullen is a, is a sizable one. I can see that's 11 spots. Uh, you and I have talked about that a little bit. I mean, to me, my case for why Dan Mullen is not a top 15 coach compared to some of those other guys is, he coached almost a decade at, at Mississippi State. He was there nine years, two top two top twenty finishes. He had a really good first year at, at Florida though. But if you look at where what he did relative to to Jackie Sherrill at Mississippi State, I don't think it was right. you know, he didn't blow the doors. He did a really nice job at at a tough place in a tough division. But it wasn't like, you know, he was he had them in the top fifteen a lot. So that's my issue. You know, you look at what Mike Leach did. Mike Leach was, I think, number 10 on my list. And he's won at really tough places. And he's done more at really tough places. So that's that was kind of my rationale on that.
1: I have a lot of respect for Mullen. I think he, his teams, yeah, they weren't playing for national t- championships, but they often overachieved Mississippi State. Uh, Mississippi State produced Dak Prescott. You know, Dan Mullen has a, has a long history now of this. And then he comes into flow. I wouldn't have had him quite as high last year, but then he does go to a blue blood program and immediately improves them from four wins to 10 wins. And Felipe Franks, who seemed kind of hopeless the year before, suddenly is a decent quarterback. So I think it's one of those things, and I know that I tend to maybe overemphasize the overachievers, but it's just one of those things where I feel like his... It's easier to see when somebody's doing a good coaching job at an under-the-radar school like that necessarily than... Than some other places. By the way, I just looked this up. Dan Mullen's uh, winning percentage at Mississippi State was 600. Do you want to guess what Jackie Sherrill's was? I don't know. 500. The last okay. coach you, to have you know a many... 600 record at Mississippi State, believe it or not, and I frankly either didn't know or had forgotten that this person coached at Mississippi State, was Darryl Royal, 1954 to 50. It was only two seasons, but he posted 600 Do you know how many, winning, winning, do you know
2: how many season. winning seasons an SEC play Dan Mullen had in nine years?
1: I think one. One. Yeah.
2: So, But again, I mean, look, I you think measure joking, this I,
1: based on, uh, like, if, if, yeah, if that were the case at, you know, LSU, you'd say the guy was a terrible coach. You base it based on relative to the historical level uh, that that program is usually at. And the last coaches before Dan Mullen were 356, 500, 382, 468. Emery Ballard, the inventor of the wishbone, couldn't crack 500 at Mississippi State, nor could... Bob Tyler at 328, Charles Shearer at 270. So let me just count this up real quick. Before Dan Mullen, the last nine coaches had not gone above 500.
2: By the way, where did you have James Franklin on your list again? 15th. You had, so wait a minute, you're giving me all this stuff about how great a job Dan Mullen did at Mississippi State, and yet you have James Franklin beneath him. Why don't you go rattle off what coaches have done at Vanderbilt and compare to what James Franklin did? And then explain how you have James Franklin, 15, and Dan Mullen, 13.
1: Okay, world's biggest James Franklin fan. There's actually a question (laughs) about that later (laughs) in our mailbag that you might want to get to. Explain it, though. Well, this person that I'm going to read the question of thinks we both have him too high. Uh, Why do I have Mullen ahead of James Franklin? I think that Franklin was... I think I had him higher uh, last year. This was a bit of a ho-hum season this past season, so maybe I dropped They finished
2: a 17th. Spots. They lost Saquon oh. Barkley. I mean, it wasn't a great year, but it's not like they were, like, 5-7 and seven There's either. one
1: criticism of my list, and you made it, that's probably valid, is that despite my own warning in the league... Too much recency too much, bias. Too much recency bias on one season in particular, in this last season. Yeah, probably should have Franklin ahead of Mullen. Uh, it's not like it was a big difference, but, yes, probably should have him above. Now let's get I'm to I'm just somebody. saying, if
2: you're if you're using the logic of Well, look at all the other coaches there. I mean, the gap between James Franklin, and this is going to, I'm going to use, so the question you're referring to is Donnie Green. What if I told you there was a coach in the top 15 on both your lists who in the last five seasons was 5-12 versus ranked teams, 3-12 in the biggest conference rivals, one game over five hundred on the road, who would you guess? Two and three in bowl games. Two and three in bowl games. James Franklin. That doesn't seem top 15 to me. Yes, he won a conference title at Penn State, and don't take that away from him. But I still see a coach who had surprising, mis- maybe misleading numbers at Vanderbilt and a generational type talent in Saquon Barkley. The numbers, in my opinion, aren't great. And as Bruce mentioned, many consider him a poor game coach. Please tell me what I'm missing here. OK, Donnie, I'm going to tell you what you're missing. First of all, the generational talent you're talking, Saquon Barkley, he was going to Rutgers till, till uh, James Franklin got to Penn State. So you got to give him credit for that. Saquon Barkley didn't just show up Second of all, I don't want to hear about the numbers are misleading at Vanderbilt because they were god awful before he got there. They were god awful right before he got there. So it's not like he took in some like, you know, Coach O was there and recruiting his butt off and then all of a sudden he inherited those players. They were terrible before that and by the way after he left they haven't had a winning season since after he left so there's that so if you want to say oh he was a really good recruiter and you know J- he's recruited better by any kind of measure than bill o'brien did it's just like he he won with somebody else's players and then all right so now he's gotten at penn state he not only won a conference he by the way was a pretty loaded division that he's that he won right you have Urban Meyer, Jim Harbaugh, and Mark Antonio in that division. Those are some heavyweight dudes, and they were all, you know, pretty much at the peak of where they're at. And he won the Big Ten. So I'm sorry, I, you know, you can tell me about if, if we want to do like what he is against ranked teams and whatnot, and some of this numbers. Then I should put Coach O in the top 25. You know, this is you can nitpick the numbers a little bit, but I mean, I'm going to argue this one for till the cow come home i mean the vanderbilt thing is a real thing and then you go to what he's done at penn state and if he finishing 17th was is, this past year was a big blemish i think penn state fans should should be okay with that
1: i can't explain it but even back when he was even when he was still at vanderbilt there was this this,
2: yeah, he didn't win the big game. Well, yeah, there was all Ohio this State. like trying
1: to discredit it because it was coming because the nine win seasons were coming against you know the lesser opponents on the schedule. Well, you know that game we just played about comparing previous winning percentages. This gets really fun. Okay, James Franklin had a 615 overall winning percentage. I won't even focus on that. 458, 11 and 13 in the SEC. Okay, so somebody's gonna look at that and go, "Oh, it was he didn't even get to 500." And he's playing Kentucky and South and Tennessee when they were bad. Okay. Well, let's see how his predecessors did in the SEC. Robbie Caldwell, 125. Bobby Johnson, 188. People have a lot of respect for Bobby Johnson. And he went 12-52 and 52 in the SEC there. And then before that, 100. Uh, poor Rod Dowhower went .063. Our friend Jerry Donardo, .290. Watson Brown, 121. George... You got to go back to to find somebody who went four fifty eight in the SEC. You have to go back to Ray Morrison, who went five forty four from nineteen thirty five to nineteen thirty nine. All right, end of disc- end of debate, debate over.
2: Yeah, and the uh, just the one other is th- misleading thing that you know you're underscoring about Vanderbilt. Some of the criticism was, oh, he beat anybody good. Well, then he got to got to Penn State and they beat Ohio State. You know, and so it's like. And then, oh, they won it on a blocked kick. Sorry, that matters, you know. So, yeah. This question is from Kevin Denson. Gentlemen, while I appreciate the great work you two do as ambassadors of college football, the results of your coaching ranking had me scratching my head. I think that you are attempting to judge coaches in the abstract of their coaching ability. However, it appears to be a slant towards coaches of programs with lesser talent. For example, you rank coaches such as Chris Peterson, David Shaw, and Gary Patterson highly for their ability to maximize the potential of their players and compete against the more talented teams. However, it is very unlikely that the respective programs will be talented enough to ever win a national title. The component that you seem to underrate is the ability to recruit. Jimbo Fisher coached FSU to a championship and is in the process of making Texas A&M a perennial contender yet he's ranked behind chris peterson whose most notable accomplishment is winning the pac-12 title similar comparisons could be made with james franklin against david shaw thanks kevin denson Stu, what do you think well
1: first of all i'm going to guess that kevin is an a&m fan because i love how he's been there jimbo has been there one year and they're already talking about it as if it's a done deal he's making a&m a perennial contender i don't necessarily deny that i probably give more credit to guys who maximize the potential of their players, win a lot of games with two and three stars, because that is a very clear example of this was your coaching ability. Whereas, you know, how do you judge a guy like Jimbo Fisher who, you know, he won a national championship. That's the single most important thing a coach can do. He recruited, there's no question, he recruited great classes at Florida State. But again, this was at Florida State. It's a lot different deal. Trying to, like, are you really going to knock... David Shaw, that he doesn't sign top five recruiting classes at Stanford. Florida State was recruiting those kind of classes long before Jimbo got there and will continue to long after Jimbo leaves because there's so much talent in the state of Florida and no offense Florida State, but probably a little easier to get in there than to Stanford. Chris Peterson did this not just at Washington, but at Boise State. So I think you have to take that into account where they're coaching. And then the only other thing I would say Jimbo, and I'm not Turning this into a Jimbo, not Jimbo session, because I do have him in the top ten as do you. But why do people just gloss over what happened at the end at Florida State? We had a friend of ours, um, Ralph Russo from the AP texting us about all the things he disagreed with, and he too thought Jimbo should be higher. And it's like, well wait a minute. Yeah, I won the national championship, had a great run there with Jameis, but now like that program is a dumpster fire and he left it that way.
2: Yeah, and I don't think we had like where did I had Jimbo five? where did you have him uh seven
1: seven yeah
2: so i don't know that's I, pretty I, good yeah, yeah i looked at kevin's kevin's comment i i really again he mentioned jimbo so like we'll see i mean this is his only this is the second place coach he had a nice first year we'll see how it turns out i mean the three guys he mentioned i mean to me what gary patterson's done there and i think you have to use it some kind as a measuring stick of what the place was like before he was there and what the arc of it is like. I mean, like you said, you go 9-4 and at Mississippi State, they're going to want to build a statue for you every year. You go 9-4 and at LSU or Oklahoma, they're going to want to run you out of there. So I I do think there's got to be, and and certain places are more resourced than others. You know, it's just different there. Certainly your alma mater fits that with Pat Fitzgerald.
1: By the way gary patterson might not have a national championship but he did take what was then a mountain west program to an undefeated season and a rose bowl win over a top five wisconsin team like yeah pretty good yes all right moving away from coaching rankings to john r from houston texas a question about the missouri bowl ban since the cfp is not under the ncaa why does the ncaa postseason ban have an effect on mizzou getting chosen for the cfp Well, unlikely if Mizzou went undefeated next year, couldn't the committee choose them as one of the top four teams anyway, or are the affiliated bowl games bound by the NCAA? That is a great question. Yes, the bowl games in particular are the ones in the semifinal, uh, which this year will be the Fiesta Bowl and the Peach Bowl, are, uh, while they're not run by the NCAA, they are NCAA-certified events. So if you're banned from the postseason, you would be banned from those bowl games. What I don't know, Bruce, because it, it hasn't come up yet, is... You know, is Mizzou ineligible from the committee's rankings? I mean, you know, if, if Mizzou is 8-1 the, the week that they do the first rankings, are they just not going to show up in that? I actually don't know.
2: Well, an answer. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't they be because you still have to use them as a metric for other opponents and certainly SEC teams, right?
1: Um, well, the AP uh, does include teams like, for instance, Ohio State and Urban Meyer's first year. But the year. AP
2: doesn't matter in this case.
1: Right, I'm just saying for comparison's sake, the AP does it. The coaches poll does not include those teams. But you're right. If you're going to sit there and say, because uh, that's why it's relevant. Georgia is three and one against the top twenty-five. You know, then you can't not have. And Missouri's supposed to be one of them. Then you can't ha- not have them in there. That's a great. So I think you're right. I think they have to rank them. Boy, that would be really awkward if the the first time Missouri actually has a playoff contender, that you're just like, all right, well they're... You get on that conference call and they're like, well, we ranked them seventh, but just, just, just skip past them. It's a great question. I need to ask somebody that. All right. Okay, our next one comes from Robbie Cook, and it's a little bit involved, but follow, follow along, Bruce. Hey, Stu and Bruce, I've had a question for quite a while. Why is Nebraska widely considered to be a sleeping giant on a national or at least consistent top 15 scale? But the usual opinion about Tennessee is, quote, just be happy if you go eight and four regularly because you're never going to be on the level of and Florida, LSU, the 90s are over, despite both programs having relatively little success since the 90s, Tennessee having better facilities, I don't know if they do or not, larger stadium, that they do, more desirable to city to live in with nicer weather. Max Olson may disagree, Lincoln native Max Olson. Uh, larger fan base, I don't know about that. Nebraska is about as rabid and large a fan base as they come. Significantly higher athletic department budget, that is true. What do you think? Do you consider them both to be sleeping giants or or neither or one and not the other?
2: You know what? I think they're fairly similar. And I think one thing that helped Nebraska out profile wise in the last decade is that it went into the much more favorable division or side of the Big Ten. It's not in the Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State side. It's in the place where Wisconsin is basically ruled with a little help from from certainly Iowa and Nebraska profile-wise. Why couldn't they do that? I think part of why maybe there's a little more juice behind the Nebraska talk as far as Tennessee. Tennessee was really good under Phil Fulmer. Nebraska was great under Tom Osborne. And I think so because they were all just I think they were even a notch above in terms of A level of success they had. It wasn't just one national title. It was just an amazing run they had. So I think there's probably a little bit more of that. As you know, on his list, I don't know if I would say the. You know, I've been to Nebraska and I've been to 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 Tennessee. I don't know if I would agree that they have better facilities. I don't know if I buy that. The larger stadium. I think both have really unique game day atmospheres and really passionate fan bases. So I don't. I don't know about that. Weather. Yeah, I'll give you whether better. Hmm. I don't know in, in terms of this, and then this is this is a nitpicky thing because I'm not sure. I look at Nebraska. I see USC or what Texas has been, you know, till Tom Herman got it going. Those to me are sleeping giants. I think Nebraska and Tennessee both should be consistent top twenty-five teams if the head coach is doing it right. But when I look at Nebraska, I just in terms of in your division. There should be nobody who is any better position than you are as at Tennessee. You just don't have quite the level of recruiting base as Florida as Georgia. You're clearly behind those two. And so if there if we're being nitpicky, I would say that's the difference, but I don't know if I would consider either a huge difference over the other.
1: I think the sentiment he's he's picking up on has probably just been the case since Scott Frost got there. I mean, since Scott Frost got there, everybody's really jazzed up about Nebraska. But in general, you know, I think I hear much more frequently, well, they're never gonna get back to the glory days in the 90s. They're not mm-hmm. gonna win national titles. They are too geographically isolated. And I think Tennessee, if all things being equal in terms of the coaches, and, you know, I'm not ruling out Jeremy Pruitt, but right now, obviously, Scott Frost is a little more proven and just has more hype around him. I actually think Tennessee's in a little better position to get back to contending for national titles just because, you know, yeah, the state itself is not a huge recruiting state, but they're in driving distance of a lot of places that are, whereas Nebraska's, you know, kind of out there in the middle of heartland and needs to, you know, go into Texas and go into California, whereas Tennessee can go into the southeast. And the other thing I would say is something pretty significant changed since the 90s for Nebraska, which is... The system that was their whole identity under Tom Osborne is just—they're not running it anymore. No, you know, nobody but but, you know, Paul Johnson and the service academies are. So they've had to completely reinvent themselves. I don't know that anything has really tangibly changed for Tennessee, other than they've had a really bad run of coaches.
2: I can tell you one thing that has changed for Tennessee since since uh, you know the decline at the end of Fulmer and then the last decade. Dabo Sweeney's happened. Yeah, and They're that's really a good close, one. and they are a recruiting machine, and kids want to go there. And I'm not saying Tennessee is the biggest loser in the well, A, a major powerhouse has risen up to a level it really hasn't been at in a long, long time. But I think that does impact them somewhat because it impacts everybody around that area, certainly them. What's interesting, by the way, is—and I think you, you hit on a really good point— why the Scott Frost factor is because Scott Frost took a program that was horrific and hadn't won a game and turned him into one that won went 12 and 0 at UCF and he's proven whereas Jeremy Pruitt is not so if you have this situation where it would be I think it would be different if if uh Jeff Brom had taken the Tennessee job or Mike Leach or somebody who was a more established proven commodity, Jeremy Pruitt, we'll see. Nobody really knows. He just had a good recruiting class, but you know, Butch Jones had good recruiting classes. There's just not enough track record for anybody to say complete buy-in. What is what is a you know how they're connected? The franchise quarterback that I think will eventually lead Nebraska to a Western division title in the Big Ten was committed for a long time to Tennessee. Adrian Martinez and basically ended up going to Nebraska. And I think that was a huge, huge uh, shift. And I'm not saying Tennessee can't win games because he didn't end up going there. There's other quarterbacks they can get. But I think that was a very interesting 180 there.
1: There is one other thing I should say in terms of how it affected Tennessee, much like you brought up Clemson. you know, I think back to the 90s, Florida was every bit... I mean, they, they were Tennessee's foil. They were their nemesis. But Georgia... That was not the high point of Georgia football in the 90s. And Tennessee at that time got a lot of their best players from the state of Georgia. Now you've got Curry Smart there trying to like build a fence around the state. That makes it a little bit harder. Now, Jeremy Pruitt, they hired him because he's such a great recruiter. And, you know, he should, you know, if all things go well, he should try to get, he should be able to get back some of those kids that would have otherwise signed with Georgia or signed with Clemson. But, you know, grand scheme of things, there's plenty of talent. Out there's no reason. I don't this this line he had about if you can go eight and four, re- you should be happy if you go eight and four regularly. I would think the only people saying that are like their rival fans. There's no reason Tennessee can't be a, a 10 and two team regularly that rises up and plays for the SEC championship, just like there's no reason Nebraska can't be that team, especially coming out of the Big Ten West.
2: Yeah, and then the reality though of that nine and four or what eight and four thing, I mean. They got tired of Butch Jones after he couldn't get better than he had a couple of nine and fours. He was on the hot seat and then the bottom foul. So I think the expectations are very real, very high there. I mean, look, Bo Pelini got fired after a bunch of nine and four kind of years. Now, some of that was a lot of that was, I think, his temperament and the persona had had to do with it, too, though.
1: All right. Finally, Bruce, remember last week, somebody called, wrote in asking, is it Middle Tennessee or Middle Tennessee State? And I kind of half jokingly said, like maybe their SID will write in. Well, he didn't, but one of the other schools from Conference USA did. Jordan Stepp, the SID at North Texas, whose email, whose name shows up in my inbox pretty much every day during football season. Hey, Stu and Bruce, hope you're well. Just listened to your latest episode of the Audible and wanted to pass along what I know about the appropriate terminology for Middle Tennessee. I have attached, I attached a document that's an official document from Conference USA. To answer the question, If you're talking about the university, it is middle Tennessee state university. If you're referring to the football program, it's middle Tennessee with abbreviations, uh, for stat abbreviations, MT or MTSU It is definitely confusing, but we refer to them on schedules, in stories, on graphics as middle Tennessee. And I've never had my counterparts in Murfreesboro ask us to switch that up. So there you go, we have resolved it middle Tennessee, in our world they're middle tennessee in academia they are middle tennessee state university
2: can we get an answer on bucharest No.
1: <laughs> that one we could probably google are you ready for march madness my friend by the time we come back on this podcast next
2: week brackets will be out march madness and becky's, Aunt becky's <laughs> in the middle of an fbi sting <laughs> how much more madness can we get
1: <laughs> it's the most wonderful time of the year I will admit I have watched less college basketball this year than at, at any point since I became a sports fan, but I'm still looking forward to the tournament. And I'm, I'm also saying
2: looking... our audience is not listening to us for college basketball.
1: No, instead, we will not so. we will not shower you with I don't do bracketology anymore. I think when I did we would occasionally I would occasionally pop up on here. And then a couple weeks I'll be hitting the road for spring football. I know you will as well, so it'll be cool to get out there and see some teams and be able to Report some actual firsthand nuggets here back on the podcast.
2: All right, Stu, what's the mailbag address?
1: You tell me, my let's see friend. If you,
2: let's see if you forgot.
1: You want to see it if would... I forgot the mailbag address?
2: Yes, yes.
1: It's the pod at gmail.com Good one, Stu. Okay. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts leave us a five-star review while you're at it it helps get the word out thanks to trader joe's for being our presenting sponsor our producer is nick fink our theme song is dangerous by kevin and the octaves you can download their music on itunes and spotify follow me Stu, at sl mandel on twitter and bruce at bruce feldman cfb and subscribe to the athletics if you haven't done so already you can try it for free seven day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial so
0: come on get over here